Hello, folks. Welcome back to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. Today we got a, eh, I want to say like a looser dump, uh, or, or maybe we're making a mountain dump out of a molehill dump. But it is. It is. You know? Yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I've been. I'm guilty of spending too much time on our episode 100 to however many episodes that's going to be thing. So I'm like, I don't have brain space for like right. anything it's, else. Uh, we are approaching uh, episode 100, and it's going to be a big one. So I know that Ryan. I'm sure you're like gearing up for that mentally it's all i care about spiritually it's all you can think about but this is this was your idea this is a great dump before we get into it uh i do want to mention that so we're recording this june 30th and this is actually two days after the 30th anniversary of Gigi allen's death oh yeah and yeah. i almost was like is Gigi allen a dump because he really was extremely kind of household uh, he was a household name for, for a, for like I mean, a, a on, brief second. I mean, for a very brief second, I, um, I worked I in a fucking museum that had the world's only wax figure of Gigi Allen. All right. Like, like I, I, I know. And, and you know what? People suggest it to me all the time, but I think that that's like, it's too like cool guy of a dump. Like, it, like that's too like, like, Oh, like you ever seen like Gigi Allen? It's like, yes, I fucking seen it. You're not that fucking cool. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? But that's, it's like, a, that's, that's like a hipster dump. That's a hipster dump. Mm. But I think that's why it should be a dump is because there is that element to it, which I call, it's almost like it's the shock factor. It's the like, have you seen Scarface? Have you seen Requiem for a dream? It's so shocking. And so then it kind of, becomes cool to be like yeah i love tarantino movies or i love Gigi allen i know those are not the same right no i got because you, of the shock factor it does kind of i think that's what made him so popular we're getting way off track here i just thought it was interesting that it was we just passed the 30th anniversary of his death just gonna pin it down it could be a, it could be a dump yeah it could be a yeah Gigi Allen. yeah but controversial rock and roll it's not an un entirely uh, ah, unrelated subject hey, yeah hey, there you go back our subject today is the the infamous song louie louie I think it's a great idea. I know that probably most people, the most famous version is by a 60s rock band, The Kingsmen. And their cover is undoubtedly what made this song the dump it is today. However, I think it's interesting to think about because I think in 2023, like, does this song still kind of have the same cultural place as it does as it did for many, many years. So it, it could have, this could be a dump that lasted for decades. Yeah. You know? But I, this story has a lot that, of dumps in it. I think that, um, like I was talking to, um, my buddy, uh, Brett Berg, who's been on from, uh, you know, museum of home video. And like, we were talking about like 
um, movie theaters showing like cool older movies. Like, like I just you know hosted a screening of Wake and Fright and stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, it's cool to like introduce these films to like a younger audience. And he was like, well, it's actually kind of a tough sell to get younger people to come to see these like obscure films because there's too many fucking movies now. Like 20 or 30, mm-hmm. even 30 years ago, like there wasn't as many cool movies. Now there's like way too many with way too much access to them. Mm-hmm. So like, and I feel like with Louie Louie, like there's just been too much fucking music made that now like y- like younger generation, like kids in high school or, or younger, they might not run into it because you just have to kind of choose what you're going to, uh, have last so it's like okay we're gonna have like satisfaction and like some Beatles song you know from the Stones and we'll have like some Beatles songs like those will stand the test of time and last we can't keep playing Louie Louie we have to move on there's too much music that's been made you know so stuff <laughs> right, kind of right. gets pushed out as time goes on but it's it, by no fault of its own Louie Louie is very uh, near and dear to my heart as a fan of rock and roll but I think about it and You know, I probably heard that song in the late 90s, so about 30-ish years from when the Kingsman version was released. What's funny to think about now is about 30 years from now, speaking of Gigi Allen, is like Nirvana, right? And that is almost, so that to me would be a bigger moment. Like there's probably more, much more of a chance of someone, you know, like a kid now obviously knowing a Nirvana song right. than yeah. Louie Louie. And granted, Nirvana is a much bigger and much more important band than the Kingsmen, but there was definitely a time where Louie Louie was just such a extremely ubiquitous cultural mark of like rock and roll. And yeah, American for sure. Culture. Well, and I mean, also it's like, you know, we're getting old, like fucking, um, you know, when I was in high school, like the new cool thing to say was like that the Beatles suck. Like we were like the first generation right. mm-hmm. to like talk shit on the Beatles. Now I'm, I'm seeing that on TikTok with like younger people being like fucking Nirvana's mid. And I was just like, you're just saying that because they were, <laughs> that was the yeah. biggest band that your parents ever talked about around you. So mm-hmm. now you're calling it mid. Like when I was a kid, the Beatles were the biggest band that my parents ever fucking talked about. So like it, it, it's this natural progression of rebellion. <laughs> so now I guess right. Nirvana is mid because they're the fucking Beatles of the 90s but what's funny about this song is this song is kind of mid it's very mid yeah (laughs) um did you have a why this is a dump prepared for this of course yeah let's get into that that's about all I have so why is Louie Louie a dump well the song Louie Louie is a dump because it is a perfect example of parents just not understanding Louie Louie or at least the version we are focusing on was released just before the counterculture movement of the 1960s and was the last bastion of the more traditional teen rebellion that we know from like the black and white era of like blackboard jungle the outsiders west side story you know greasers the fucking stand by me bad guys all that stuff that was so prevalent in the 1950s this is kind of that last rock and roll song of that rebellious era mm-hmm. even you know of course it's in the 60s but y- you know what i'm saying and then uh, the controversy that surrounds the song is laughable in retrospect but at the time the possibility of a popular song containing vulgar lyrics was concerning enough for the fbi to get involved and this song is so deeply burned into the patchwork of american pop culture that it is truly bizarre to consider the scandal it begat that's yeah it's very true there the scandal is very important to its place in pop culture and it is very funny to think about in retrospect uh that the fbi got involved 
uh, some other Robert big, Kennedy, the FCC. Robert, yeah, exactly. Um, so the other thing I just want to say about it is like this song is kind of considered by some to be like the most covered rock song of all time. There's something about like 2000 versions, 2000 published versions. So that means 2000 versions versions that are on records that were released by record companies. Right. Uh, There's many artists, uh, some of them, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Blondie, Iggy Pop, Black Black Flag, Flag, Barry White, uh, Sisters of Mercy. I found a really awesome <laughs> cover of the Sisters of Mercy. Louie, Louie. Um, it kind of, it sounds like Suicide. Uh, oh, sick. Toot, Toots and Maytals, the uh, legendary reggae group. I actually really like their version. I've also listened to this song a lot in the last couple days. And it starts <laughs> to, it's like really weird when you hear the song like over and over again. Um, yeah, so you start kind of going crazy. Well, think about the guys in the FBI that had to listen to it fucking forwards, backwards, <laughs> slowed down, sped up, like fucking the Judas Priest trial shit. Right. So it's the thing about this is that, and we'll we'll get into it more, but it really, it kind of relates one to the very specific version that the Kingsman did, but then it also has this really widespread thing because the song is so simple so then it being covered so many times is kind of one of the farther reaching elements of the dump too uh but again let's get into it the first point of anyone knowing it is definitely got to be the kingsman version it is it is honestly iconic it's an iconic song uh it's an iconic recording uh for the longest time i did just assume that the Kingsmen, you know, wrote the song, uh, but they didn't. So let's back up uh, to the 50s, rock and roll, like you said, uh, with a uh, an American musician, Richard Berry. Now, Richard Berry uh, was an R&B singer who Dick wrote Barry. the song. And he, Dick Berry. Uh, no relation to Chuck, um, but he, this guy, this is a really, Richard Berry's a really interesting uh, note like sort of footnote in rock and roll uh one for writing louie louie he also wrote a song have love will travel which is also like pretty very well covered as well so he wrote these with at least just these two songs that's kind of like 50 percent of like the entire garage rock movement comes from come from this guy these two songs that this guy wrote uh notably the sonics covered both of these songs and i think the sonics cover of have love will travel is also considered like a very important piece of the whole garage rock movement um so richard berry he was making like r&b rock and roll and he heard a song called el loco cha-cha So that song right there has this like Latin rhythm. It's pretty much like the exact same rhythm as the Louie Louie song. And Richard Berry heard this because he was doing a show uh, where it was like an R&B band. And then there was like an Afro-Cuban band playing. Just like he was like all the music groups that 
weren't white people. Like, let's just throw them on one. <laughs> let's give them one show. You know, it's the 50s. They're right. like, we'll just throw them all on one, and then we can yeah. continue on with the night. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he heard he heard this, like, rhythm, and he was like, wow, I love this kind of, like, style, and I've got to write a song. And it's kind of that classic, like, oh, I just got to take a piece of paper. Anything. Just give me a pen and a piece of paper anywhere. And he wrote... Eureka. Famously, he wrote just Louie, and then he <laughs> wrote Louie again on it. And he just, like, scribbled these uh, lyrics down and recorded a version of the song in 1957. Now, what's really interesting about the version he wrote, and take note of this for later, is that in the version he wrote, you can understand all of the lyrics right, yeah, that yeah. he sang. Um but he does utilize sort of like a speech pattern that's based off of like Jamaican Patois. Um, and that's kind of where some of the added confusion is going to be later. So yeah, he's, he's like doing this. He's, he's basically mixing like R and B American, like rock and roll with some like Afro Caribbean, it's rhythms cool. and speech patterns. It's just it's a cool song. The original version is a really great uh version. I actually really love that one. Um but I'm just going to like very quickly quote a couple lyrics just like where it's like me sail the ship alone, me never think me make it home. So those me are said Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Jar Jar Binks was Based off the Gullah Geechee. Yeah. Uh, so that is why Jar Jar speaks like that. Um, <laughs> Thank you for clearing that. <laughs> also, real quick, like, I love, like, he's like, I need a pen. I got to make a song. Uh, uh, I, I picture him looking around the club and he sees the name tag on, like, the soda jerk and it's like, Louis, Louis. And then he keeps looking around, but there's nothing else. So he sees the same name tag again, Louis. And that's like, mm -hmm. like, how did he get that? Right. You know, like, why? Right. And why was it the same name? two times louis louis it's but that's part of that's part of this the dump is kind of how accidentally so many things happened and how it creates such a mystique around something that is so simple and kind of innocent in a way uh louis louis it just works it's you can't deny it. it's just kind of catchy and it sounds great together louis louis you know when but i was basically um... this well, when I was a kid, I had a, a game. I'm sure some folks will be like, "Oh fuck, I remember that." Um, called Gooey Louie. Do you remember that? It was a, yeah. It was a big head, and you pulled boogers out of the nose until one yes. of the boogers was connected. And this scared me when I was a kid because I thought that that could happen to me. One of the boogers was connected to something that would launch the brain out of the top of the head. I was like, so you could pull a booger that like pulls the uh -huh. fucking lever that like shoots your fucking brain out. Yeah. But yeah, Gooey Louie. Yeah, it was the whole thing. Yep. So, so, yeah, yeah. They used the song I, in the commercial. Of course. Um, so the original Louie Louie written by Richard Berry, the, there's a very simple message. It's kind of like from the perspective of a like a Jamaican sailor. He even says, me see Jamaica moon above, right? It's That's the influence. And it's just a sailor who's missing his girl and he can't wait to get back on land and see his girl. Very straightforward, like 50s kind of, there's nothing really in any way controversial about this song whatsoever. So he, Richard Berry records the song. Uh, I think it's kind of like a modest hit. 
but certainly nothing too big, right? Now, one interesting thing that happens um, is that Barry is the song doesn't do super well and he is about to get married in the late 50s and he needs some cash so he sells the entire songwriting rights to louis louis for something like 750 dollars not bad back then for a song that wasn't popular you know what i mean like exactly in 50s money like that's pretty good and just like selling off like one song and it wasn't even a hit like that's pretty decent but again you know it's like this music business shit you never know when when it's gonna pick up so you know yeah didn't work out that well at the end exactly um so i think that it's like he sold it to like a publishing company so it's just kind of like oh we got a song right so now it's just like anyone can kind of record this song um relatively easy uh so there's a couple covers at this moment like i said it was like a moderate hit it sold about 130,000 copies right he you know so it's it, it it was enough to get some attention namely from like other like sort of like rock and roll bands they're like oh this is cool because like i said the original song is cool and so obviously some people heard it and wanted to start doing some covers there was only a couple around this time uh but now we're gonna get into the kingsman version because that's right you know where it, it, this is the one well and that... I, I know that the like besides the kingsman like the whalers did a version in uh in 19 what's 1961 and that would probably be considered the second biggest cover of it you, you know what i mean like because that's oh yeah but I... no but this isn't this is not bob marley no it's the it's the fabulous whalers oh, okay this is an america this is an american band so this is also the era in the 60s where there's just like there could probably be like eight bands named the Whalers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's so many there's so many bands, there's so many the bands, the Frantics, the Sonics, the Kingsmen, um the and Richard Berry the the Richard Berry was that his recorded version was Richard Berry and the Pharaohs. So that was uh. also like another thing you have the singer and then the backing band is the whatever. Um, there was also a band, Tiny Tony and the Statics, that recorded it. So it kind of like, it did kind of have this like enough of a popularity to be like, oh, this is a cool song. We got to add it to our set. And we get to like, we get to sing in this like sort of patois thing, but we don't have to like go fully into like a reggae. Different times. Sort of <laughs> Different times for sure. Um <laughs> There was this. It's like uh, fucking yeah, so Chet there, Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, this, be a girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the. This kind of there. I'm gonna tie it to some like Chet Hanks TikTok stuff because it, there is kind <laughs> of that phenomenon going on here. But let's so let's get into the Kingsman version. So it's it's 1963. Uh, they're a pretty small like rock band from or- Portland, Oregon. And they were basically trying to put together a demo so that they could get a job on a cruise ship. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they were just like, we got to record some songs and hopefully the cruise ship will hire us. So like the aspirations are relatively low, right? They're just like trying to get like one another notch up 
So probably their entire repertoire was cover songs. They're oh, just like, for we sure. Gotta, like, we need to know the cool rock songs of the day. We'll get on this cruise ship. We'll start making money, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, so it's April 6th of 1963. And they go in to record at a studio in Portland. Uh, and reports are that they paid either between $36 or $50. Yeah, I, I, I heard 36 work. Yeah, and I believe the studios yeah. were called, was called uh, Northwest Studios, just to get specific here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- like 36 to 50 bucks. Yeah, for it was like a single session day. Like, right. right. <laughs> and magic, yeah, and that's just also- pure magic. Right, which is also interesting because back in this time, there was a lot more stuff like that with studios where they're like, yeah, just come in, cut one song, and maybe it'll play the radio, which is kind of funny because I feel like we're almost coming back to that era of like, let's just do one song and putting out like singles are kind of more popular now, even though no one probably calls them singles. But with streaming and stuff, it's like if you can just put out one song, that's all you might need. So it's kind of interesting how that has come back around. But this is much more of a time where there just be like these little like sort of makeshift studios in places like in the middle of like well, even like downtown s- Portland, even like Sun Records, you know, like like the fucking yeah. like king of, of country and rock and roll music. Like they would just pump singles out and then sometimes they'd be on the radio by the end of the day. Like, you know, exactly. what I mean? so like, yeah, it was yeah. totally common practice. So Sun Records is kind of, you know, their success in this format is kind of what, you know, led to this style. Um, so the Kingsmen are recording it. I, They're pretty young, right? They're like, they're late teens. Yeah. And they, the guy who's producing it was a, like a local uh, DJ, Ken Chase. Uh, and he also owned a night a teen nightclub teen clubs also i don't know if that's a dump there's not really like teen clubs kind of had its moment in the 80s there and the 60s only but... one teen club i no no well i've so, never been to no, one no there was a couple i went to one it was called fusion and it was at the <laughs> it, it was at the um local laser tag place this is actually really dark now that i think about it um it, it, <laughs> oh god it, it was going? it was the <laughs> easy it was the first time i ever saw live music like so outside in like the arcade area like where they would usually set up tables to have like the birthday parties and pizza parties that was cleared out and there was like a pit first time i ever saw a pit i was like terrified as fuck uh everyone looked huge to me even though they were probably just like 18 and i was 13 um Mm -hmm. and they would have bands play and then in the actual laser tag arena they would play they would have djs and it would just play like top 40 rap and that was known as the freak dance room and i remember freak dancing i remember Uh going in there and like again i was in like junior high and i would see girls like the popular girls from my junior high school with like my friends older older brothers like freak dancing and shit and just being like this is some dark shit like even back then <laughs> and then i forgot they, they they just called it that they didn't have a name for it but they did the the same kind of night at the ice station it was like an ice rink where one section was live bands and that was like during emo and screamo so there was like a billion bands and then the freak dance room and then uh, the right. la- the last teen club I remember in in high school there was like it was called Tiger Heat and it was a club in L A like like on Santa Monica Boulevard like very harsh area and one night a week they had an all ages night 
and like it would be like on a thir- like a Wednesday, and like I remember all like the jocks and popular kids would go, and they'd come back just like fucking strung the fuck out the next day. And like, and we're like, what happens there? Because I was so naive. I was like, what's happening yeah. at this Tiger Heat to where these kids go and they come back <laughs> and they're all messed yeah. up the next day? I don't get it. Like, why are they all sick? Oh man, yeah. I mean, I knew that there was there was there's a club called Wild Bills and they had a teen night, but I oh, did not go to it. Teen night at Wild Bills, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know what's weirder to have just a fully de- dedicated teen club or to have a regular club that has a teen night. Uh, there, either way, wait, well, one more, one more now that I know, cause now, now, now they're coming up and like, I know that I have people like, I know that some of my people are listening. Um, (laughs) and so in my hometown there, they, there was another place called unit J and it wasn't necessarily a teen club. It was like an all ages venue that was run by a church. And so they were like the kind of Christian church that had the youth pastors with like tattoos and like gauges and shit. And so they would always have like hardcore bands. They're like hardcore dancing and like fucking like windmills and shit were really big. And on the stage, in order to be like fucking badass and like we're cool, but we're about Christ, there was this huge like heavy metal style cross that was painted, Mm -hmm. but they had painted like flames on it. So there's a giant burning cross on stage, and it was Whoa. just totally lost on them. That that's like not chill. So somewhere in someone's fucking photo album on their their like fucking Flickr or something, there's a picture of me as like a 15 year old playing drums in my emo band in front of a giant painting of a burning cross, and I'm not proud of it. But Unit J, another teen club. All right, enough with the teen clubs. <laughs> All right, there you have it. So anyway. So there's a teen club called The Chase, and there's this DJ named Ken Chase. He owns the, the club. The Kingsmen were the house band there. And then they go to this studio, Northwest Studio, to record some some tracks. And apparently, uh, the whole thing with this with Ken Chase is he he just like it's so it's a it's thirty six dollars. So he put like a a microphone just kind of hanging in the ceiling, like one boom mic to sort of capture the entire band, which granted, this is not completely, um, this is fairly standard practice in the fifties and sixties. A lot of Elvis recordings were only recorded with one microphone. And if you wanted to change the level of an instrument you either got closer or further away from the mic or you sang or played louder right so that's like how you had which is like the ultimate like back in my day type of thing to be like like thinking about playing for some you know playing some 40s or 50s recording and you just had to actually just change your volume yourself yeah like, like you're hit literally it harder yeah <laughs> and mixing as you're like doing the mix yourself but now um, that's how like a lot of like people re- like, like I, i'm picturing like like bedroom bands and like like you know like the lo-fi scene and like even black metal like that's like, like you do that to make your shit sound shitty on purpose but back then that's just right. what they did for everyone yeah, that was there. I mean, you know, at the time, I don't know exactly when the move from four track happened, but you know, you had four track tape recorders was pretty st- standard, so you could only record like four, you know, audio tracks at one time. So the technology really wasn't that advanced, but still, there's plenty of examples of really well. Rec- sounding really good sounding recordings sure in the 50s and 60s um so that being said 
this is still kind of taking that standard of the day practice and still kind of doing it very goofy and comically bad. So they put the, the one mic in the center of the room hanging and the band, apparently one thing is the singer Jack Eli thought that because there was just this one mic in the center that he needed to crane his head up and sort of very awkwardly with his neck up, like sing at the mic, kind of like Lemmy. Yeah, I was just thinking like Lemmy. Which also Motorhead does a cover of Louie Louie. Um, <laughs> but I guess, I guess <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's pretty rough. So there there was that happening with the singer. He had also like just gotten braces, and I think that that also like affected his ability to sing. Um, the band was also pretty sloppy. They the the version that they do. There are notable mistakes on the, yeah. the, rec- the final song that gets released. Part of it is that they thought, we're going to do another take of this song. It, there, it is disputed whether the, the version you've heard is the first take or the second take. Yeah, I heard either second. Way, yeah. Either way, uh, it's there's a lot of like kind of unintentional slop in the song. And they thought they were going to get to do it again, but... Because it costs thirty six bucks, like this guy Ken Chase is like, no, it sounds great. That's you, it. You know, he's like, give me my lousy thirty six bucks. You guys get out of here. It's great, whatever. So that it's there's all these sort of warts and all elements to the song. Well, and you know the thing about doing takes, like if, and I'm sure even someone that's never picked up an instrument ever like understands the concept of how recording works, even on a bass level. But like back then, you know, again, with the one microphone thing, if you do another take, everyone has to play it because nowadays everyone records separately. Even if you're playing all together, everyone's instrument is being recorded separately. So your drummer could have a really kick ass take. So you keep that. But then the guitarist goes again, Mm -hmm. you know, so this time everyone is playing at like a different percentage of perfection (laughs) each time you do it, because maybe like the guitarist was right on on the first take, but the the basses was a little off. So now you got to play it again. But now the guitarist is going to be a little slow while the bass is better and now the drums yeah. are falling behind so it's like right. every time it's going to be completely different than the last time you know if, mm-hmm. if you're listening to it with a keen ear so yeah that's why you can't do it that many times either because then you'll start getting tired and then every take will suck right so that's what's interesting because it kind of again is a testament to when you listen to you know music from that era if it was recorded with one microphone you also have to appreciate the fact that the band was performing this live uh there was most likely not overdubs or very minimal overdubs and so it kind of does that is the back in my day thing is to kind of appreciate how that music was recorded uh so many years ago but also this is what's so great about this is how you can also see in the Kingsman instance of how, yeah, it very much feels like a band was all doing it together and they're just, it's a really sloppy take. Uh, it's very chaotic and there are a couple moments. There's one moment where uh, he comes in singing after the solo and he kind of does a little hiccup because <laughs> he, comes, he comes in wrong and they leave that and Oh, yeah. And it all kind of works. It all kind of gives it these, like, idiosyncratic moments to it. Right. Uh, There's also a moment. 
with well, the drummer. Yeah, but we'll save that well uh, for a little bit uh, further down the road here once we start talking about the song blowing up. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I feel like though a keeping in mistakes is now commonplace. Like um, a lot of a lot of folks like to do that. Like the Kingsmen without them and without Louie Louie, their ver- without their version of Louie Louie getting as big, we wouldn't have bands like the fucking like the Strokes. You know what I mean? Like, like there, yeah. there would be a whole generation of of bands that we wouldn't have without this like deep influence of like just like fucking doing it by the seat of your pants. Like, fuck it, we'll do it live. Like, leave that shit in. Like, fuck it. Like, yeah. one day we got this shit. Like, right. you know, I wanted to sound like shit. Like, it's cool. It's rough. You know, but also, but in the case of the Kingsman, that wasn't intentional. They just couldn't afford another session. <laughs> Right. They couldn't afford another session, but there is this very unintentional and very real roughness, sloppiness, chaotic element to it. Some people point at the guitar solo of the song, kind of having this chaotic nature, and it all does kind of create, you know, what is going to make the song what it is. The other The Kingsman would be is, signed to is, Burger is, Records nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other big thing, as we said, is the vocals themselves. I think it's a combination of the mic placement and of the singer Jack Eli's um, braces or whatever it is, or just there is a general like maybe incompetence. And on that <laughs> version, you cannot you cannot understand what they're saying in the verses you get the louie louie part you can hear that fine but in the verses it is really hard to tell what they're saying and they just leave it in there and that's going to kind of contribute to like what makes this song so iconic and a dump the other kind of really memorable moment of the song is when he's like screams he's like okay let's give it to him and he just suddenly just screams it yeah, uh, out of nowhere, and you're just like, "Whoa, okay, where did that come from?" Um, it well, and that sounds like that plays into the the controversy later on too. Like everything that we're talking about right now is going to be picked apart, like by like fucking noise, like sound analysts and shit. Yeah. Like short, exactly. like very soon. Yeah, right. So the song gets recorded in April of '63, and like to again just show how. Like, let's just white, let's one and done this thing. The song got released in May of 63. <laughs> so it was just like, I could just see this, this DJ who's like running a teen club and also a DJ and just being like, give me my 36 bucks. And he's like, all right, guys, like I can just, you can just see how he's just like, I'm just making a little buck off these kids. Right. And yeah. he's just like, just pass it off, release the song, May of 63. It comes out. Um, I, it did not do super well at first. Um, it's, they did not get the job on the cruise ship. Um, they tried to, they did have a, a label, Jordan, uh, Jordan records <laughs> is the name of the label. Um, and they did get picked up by a larger label wand records. So they, in October of 63, um, A and M records, which was a big label at the time, they passed on it because they said the song was too long and out of tune. Um, so the it wasn't looking too great for the Kingsmen, and they were pretty like discouraged at this moment from the song. 
Uh, but w there was a big change about to happen. A Boston DJ, Arnie Ginsberg, uh, was given the record by a pitch man, which is like <laughs> essentially like you're gonna love this song. It sounds it, like shit. It's it's basically that. Um, I also did a deep dive into Paola. Oh, that's uh, a dumb. Though that, that's a whole a dump. other thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Paola is super interesting. But anyway, so Arnie Ginsberg got the song. Uh, and he was like, he heard it, he heard the record and all the things we described, all the weirdness and sloppiness about it. And he said, hey, I like how sloppy it is. And he was doing a program uh, on the radio called Worst Record of the Week. So he's <laughs> this is basically a diss, right? And he plays it and he's like, here, so today's Worst Record of the Week is Louie Louie by the Kingsman. And he plays it. However, when he plays it, people love it. Like people start to like, respond to it so it starts like blowing up so this is the first element to me where it, it does kind of feel like some tiktok meme shit where it's like the same idea of just like this is so kind of silly and weird but maybe also real that it the, the response starts to become positive it was like the gundam style of its time or or what the fox say of its yeah. of its time, almost like I, where it's I, like this is so ridiculous. I I love it. To me, I was gonna say that song Mo Bamba because I could never understand what they were saying in Mo Bamba, and that song was huge. And all I remember is like lots of videos of like kids in middle school screaming along to Mo Bamba. <laughs> So that was, um, but basically the, so the song starts like blowing up kind of, or like maybe not like, yeah, maybe not Gangnam style, like international no, world like, well, it, it didn't go viral, you know, nothing went viral yeah. in the sixties. Yeah. But the song, it entered into the billboard hot 100 and by December 7th of 63, it was peaked at number two. So yeah, I mean huge. that's number two. That's that's a huge song, uh, and it 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 held on to the number two spot for six non consecutive weeks, but it remained in the top ten. You know why? December sixty three and January of sixty four. I I feel like it didn't like because it was non consecutive. Like Louie Louie, it's such a party song that like during the week no one's really thinking about going out and getting their Louie Louie record. Like they're like, oh, yeah. I'll wait till <laughs> then the weekend comes and they're like, let's fucking rage to Louie Louie. And then they're like, yeah, okay, yeah. no more fucking Louie Louie. Like all hungover and stuff. Yeah. And then the weekend comes around and yeah, it's time for more Louie Louie. Like it's a it's a seasonal yeah. song for sure. And that's definitely part of it is it because of the sloppiness is the song. It kind of sounds like they're drunk. Uh, yeah, I, don't think they I always were thought drunk. that. No, I don't think so either. I think no. But now it's like, no, they were kids and they it seems like everyone's sort of inexperienced. But that's part of it is it kind of you hear it. And also for other cultural reasons we'll get into, you kind of are like, yeah, this song makes me want to drink. I think also the fact that you don't understand the words, you're like, well, Kind of sounds like when a drunk guy does karaoke and he's, blah, 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 yeah. you know, so it kind of has that nature to it. And, you know, drinking songs are also like a very, you know, that's always been a tradition in themselves. Yeah, of course. 
Yeah, no, so, Louis, Louis. I always, I always did think of it like that, and then like, yeah, like researching this a little bit, I was like, oh, like they were so young. It, it's, it's just, yeah, it's the inexperience, it's the braces, or they just kept it a secret that they were fucking trashed at the time. Who knows? But like, why would you after so many years? But yeah, it, it's totally a partying song, a drinking song. We'll talk more about how it, you know, found a second life strictly as that later in the episode. My, my other thought is like potentially because the song had this sort of like like a jamaican speech pattern is like possibly because let's the kingsman is like a bunch of white dudes from portland right like maybe they were just like slightly like oh shit like how do we sing this song <laughs> you know i don't think it's a, in 1963 like anyone was that concerned about like appropriation or anything i like don't that. know if they were worried it's not that i think that they were worried about culturally appropriating or being not pc but i think that they literally just might have been like i don't know this sounds weird yeah <laughs> you know like we, how do we sing it like what why is he saying me me want to go you know like it yeah. just kind of i th i think what i will say is the way that when you hear these like four white teens singing lyrics that were written by a black man who was emulating a Jamaican speech style via like Afro-Cuban rhythms. Like that's kind of what makes it interesting. Copy of a copy of a copy. It's a copy yeah. of a copy of a copy. And so that's kind of, I think that is also what adds to the mystique. Cause you're just like at this, is this where you get with the Kingsman version where you're like, what is, what are they saying anyway? And what are they saying is where the controversy comes Yeah, because the, the 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 phrasing is so like slurred and hard to understand now granted there are actual lyrics written from the original version but when you go back and listen to the louis the kingsman version it is really hard to understand so what starts to happen is people start it's it's essentially i saw one quote where it becomes almost a rorschach test for your own perversion because if you don't know what it is now granted this is also in the time where rock and roll had created a ton of controversy for about the last you know eight or nine years from like the yeah, mid 50s better part of 10 years the yeah. 60s. so it, it already did have a reputation but i think that's interesting that may, it's like oh like but maybe some of that controversy had died off in terms of like the initial shock of rock and roll by this point eight or nine years you know that rock and roll is kind of gonna it's not just like a passing fad anymore well, uh, but once, that might be the perfect time for this new controversy right. of the song to come I, out. I think that it, it's that, that that's an interesting point. I think that like, you know, because when rock and roll started, it was it was black music, and that was like really the the problem with it. Like once like white teenagers started listening to it, that was the big problem most of their parents had with, with it. And then once you have enough white rock and roll artists, like you know Elvis leading the charge on that, then then the 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 racial mixing element kind of starts falling by the wayside as far as the concern. And then it's like the sexuality, and then you know it's becoming so mainstream that even that falls. So what's the next thing? Well, now maybe it's the profanity and profanity mm -hmm. in rock and roll has been something that i mean to this day people you know complain about lyrics and stuff not necessarily with rock and roll but in music in general like profanity mm -hmm. and like obscene obscene lyrics that's something that is like a a like tried and true thing for parents to be worried about so that profanity, that's where the, the worry went and then of course sexual lyrics uh violent lyrics as well but i think really like sexual lyrics has always had this 
special place of getting under people's skin and in the, the pearl clutching. Um, so the how this exactly started, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but there was rumors that, you know, some of the, because this was popular with teens and some of it was that potentially it was that teens, like kids in school, they were starting to say, hey, this song is about sex because they're kind of being able to, they're putting in their own, since the words don't really make sense, you can kind of start to put in your own words. Yeah. So people were saying, this is what it's about. So then there was start kind of these rumors in high schools and middle schools that people were like passing notes, like, which sounds so 60s to just be like yeah. passing, like, do you want to know what Louie Louie's really saying? Um, so it kind of became this like underground, like hush hush thing. Um, and one thing is that parents, I think, probably started to catch on. Like my kids listening to this song, like, what is it? I don't understand what this is. Also, think about this in the 60s. Like, it's funny again to think about mumble rap, which right. was like a phenomenon we experienced recently. And even then, mumble rap managed to generate so much controversy only like 10 years ago about is this art? What are they saying? Maybe not the like, is it hiding messages? But the yeah. fact of like the fact that you couldn't clearly understand mumble rap got people so pissed off. Yeah. So imagine yeah, yeah. this in like the 60s of like we especially like if you're <laughs> writing a song, you're supposed to be able to understand it. Right. Like it's kind of like not even thinking any kind of concept of art potentially being subverted like subverting in any way right which the kingsmen were not trying to do any kind of subversion they were well, trying to do a cover it's like what i know, said cruising. you know in the in the intro where it's like like parents just didn't get it like 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 why can't i get this like why do you like yes. this so much what are they saying tell me what they're fucking saying you know and then I'm sure that there was times where kids were passing around the these fake lyrics and maybe a kid got busted singing along to like the parents overheard them and they're like what the fuck are you talking like what what the fuck or finding the notes right. in their in their book bag or something and like what is this you know and then they, and then i guess because they like I, I i would just love to know the timeline of the first parent to really make the complaint because yeah. what happened was the FBI received several complaints from parents across the country because they would go to their local law enforcement not knowing where to go and be like, this fucking song. And they're like, we can't do anything about that. Like, that song's on the radio. Yeah. It's a national yeah. thing. That goes up to the bigwigs at the FBI. But it, it reminds me of, like, mm -hmm. in elementary school, um, it was a big thing, like, I believe I can die. I got shot by the FBI. <laughs> oh, I yeah. remember that. All I wanted was yeah. a chicken fry. Yeah, dude. So it's like, you know, kids do that all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And it's usually so kids, not that big of a yeah. deal. Yeah. So kids are probably, and it's a very catchy song. It's a catchy melody. And it's easy for anyone to sing, which is also part of the appeal of it. So I'm sure it's just really easy for kids to, like, start making up their own stuff. Um What's also interesting is I found out that uh, Indiana might have been one of the places where this really kicked off. Apparently, yes, it's true. These these two teenagers in Indiana, teenagers, not parents, they were upset with the <laughs> lyrics. Fucking nerds. And they, yeah, I mean, it's hard to not call them narcs, right? Uh, but they wrote a letter to the governor of Indiana, <laughs> saying that they're just basically saying that they object. They object the obscene lyrics that they're hearing on the radio via this new rock and roll song. You know who so those governor, fucking kids listen said, to? Those kids probably fucking listen to Anita Bryant, one of our past dumps. 
Exactly. I mean, this is where it starts to get into that because it's starting to catch. So he gets a hold of the record. He sits down. He listens to it at several different speeds, <laughs> which also kind of goes into this whole like Judas Priest thing where you're like, if you slow it down, do you play it backwards? Um, and he's convinced that the record indeed might be dirty because basically he's listening to it at different speeds and he doesn't understand what it's saying. So he's like, well, I don't know what they're saying. So, yep. It might be dirty. So then he alerts the FCC that maybe this is a problem. And uh, there was, they asked to ban the song in Indiana. Um, and this is where it really started to kick off. Um, and people, you know, people start, parents are starting to write in and, and because the song's really big. So there's this, yeah, this backlash starts to kind of really naturally. And that that's uh, when it reaches the FBI and Robert Kennedy, you know, where, where they're like, OK, because and it wasn't necessary because, again, this gets into a free speech thing. Like, that's why it became like an investigation at the level that it was, because for a state to be like, we want to ban this song because of what it says. It's like, well, first of all, a lot of stuff is protected under <laughs> under freedom of speech. But if you can't tell me what what it's saying, then we can't ban it. So then it becomes an investigation into like, well, is this obscene? And then the actual criminal element that the FBI was interested in was the actual sale of the records, because if it was deemed obscene, then that's um, interstate transportation of obscene materials. Oh, yeah. They're like, you've got the FBI on you. So it is like an official thing now. Like, it's a case like it, this is. The FBI. Yeah. I, I, um, J. Edgar Hoover, probably while wearing, you know, fucking garter belts and shit like underneath his desk, but like a like a blazer and like, like you know, a yeah. dress shirt on, on top, like while he's sitting at his desk in his high heels. He's just in his office listening to Louie Louie like a million right. times. You're like, Something has to be done. <laughs> right. And again, thinking about it now, it sounds so silly. So and yeah, the whole Robert F. Kennedy thing. He was an he was attorney general at the time, right? And and outraged parents were writing letters to him. When you look at, you could go back to Richard Berry's original lyrics, and you can clearly see that there's nothing obscene about the original song. However, right, right. they started to point directly at the Kingsmen to be like, wait, did the Kingsmen? intentionally change the lyrics or muffle them or possibly make it so that you can't understand it so that they're sort of hiding these obscene lyrics yeah and sort of trying to get away with it so they were also looking sort of squarely at the kingsmen for and there was this entire thing um i actually went to an fbi museum exhibit um like a year a year ago or so and they had like this whole kind of pop culture section and they had like an original like pressing of the of the kingsman louis louis with the whole thing about that and then a copy of the lyrics because there was obviously you know, hundreds of different versions of the lyrics that kids were making up for the song. But one in particular is the one that you always see used in like, you know, documentaries or like anything about the like articles. They always cite this one particular um, version because it's it has a cuss word in it. And I'll I'll do. I'll do one of the verses, <laughs> but it's yeah. at, at night at 10. I lay here again. Fuck you, girl. Oh, all the way. Oh, my bed, and I lay her there. I made a rose 
in her hair. Like, it's not that bad, dude, considering that fucking WAP again, like, made it to fucking, like, number one for, like, ever. And, like, you know what I mean? It, it's so bizarre. Um, and even, like, an, an, like that's, by the way, that is the only cuss word in this notorious version. And this is the one that was distributed. Sure. Um, but there there's are also other, a part about, like, yeah. yeah, it's all about sex. It's like, there's generally, a, it's yeah. just sex. It's like, talking about it's you know a girl i'd lay her i'm in the park all alone the like, very the very last just, one is get that broad out of here <laughs> yeah yeah so it's Little generally just chuck. kind of it's a very good and it is kind of funny to find some of these you know like get her get her down low you know and it's just like all these like which also because it's also still in this like 60s thing where it it is yeah. obscene, but it also is in like a 60s way, which seems kind of really tame now. Um, but what you've got is you've got this full on, you know, sort of the cat's out of the box, right? Like right. now that it's happening, <laughs> out of the box, out it, of the bag, <laughs> out of the, <laughs> yeah, sorry, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> um, but what is this going to do is this is going to create more interest as we know pretty much almost with anything like more controversy more interest so like absolutely the kingsmen were able to ride off of the success of this for something like two years like all through 64 and even into 65 uh they are just going on tour and because what's happening two things were reported to have happened one is that the fbi would be coming to their shows uh to see if they when they perform it live they can hear what it is that's that like fucking nwa really shit um so there apparently that was happening the other thing is that uh like the kids at the shows they would have like pen and paper and they would be trying to write down what it is so they were also trying to hear because everyone was trying to be like is it what is it and so everyone was sort of trying to figure out like what is the naughty stuff that they're saying. That's like me at like a Twista show, trying to write down everything that he's saying <laughs> and figure it out. Um, yeah, so it it really kind of the all of this combined led it to make it, if nothing else, just like a a pretty iconic, you know, '60s moment. Um, what ended yeah. up happening after 31 months of investigation <laughs> from the FBI. They decided that there was just they could not determine any real threat from the lyrics. They couldn't they could never decipher anything. They just literally said, we just have no idea what they're saying. Yeah, like um, we got other so shit to, to worry about. All right. Like Appa <laughs> apparently in this like decision, part of that was because they kept presenting different iterations of dirty lyrics and they were never the same. So um, I don't know if it was a judge or whoever was like, you can't even decide on what the dirty lyrics are. So that has to be an indication that it's not even what you think it is, which is why I think it's such an interesting thing to call it an obscene Rorschach test, because it's right. like whatever your whatever your perverted mind thinks it is. Yeah, uh, it that's, is. That's what it is. Um, so, yeah, it it really was like a huge um, it was a huge moment in the 60s what's also funny is that this lyric controversy also resurfaced in the year 2005 
uh, when a marching band wanted to play the song at a uh, um, high school in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And the superintendent of the school refused the marching band. To, they, she said they couldn't play the song because of obscene lyrics. So she just like completely missed. She was one of the, the fucking uh, narc kids from Indiana that wrote the fucking governor. <laughs> yeah, she, she was like, finally, my, my time. She's like the mom from Detroit Rock City. Like, this is Satan's music. Yeah. It, yeah. Wow, dude. Jesus Christ. Um, In 2005. Right. Oh, my God, dude. That's infuriating. So. But what you have is you've got two kind of things that are going to you've got the controversy. So it kind of reinstates rock and roll as this vital music of youth and of the times in the 60s. And you've also got this this kind of the raw energy of the recording, the sloppiness, the chaos and those two elements. It it did have a huge impact. So it was after the Louis F after the Kingsman version that's when this explosion of covers uh, started happening. So pretty I, I think much that, every that, yeah. 60s band had to do a Louie Louie. If they didn't record it, I'm sure they were playing it live. The Kinks did it. The Who did it. Uh, I think Sam Sham and the Pharaohs. Yeah. The Beach Boys. Jan and Dean. It goes on. I found a list, a short or like a... I, I haven't gone through it. It's not short at all. It's 60 pages <laughs> of all these the, bands. The opposite of a short list is yeah. 60 pages, dude. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> My brain's a little like I even see like it says Led Zeppelin did it. I'm like, did Led Zeppelin do this song? Like probably. But like so many, you know, back when they were like the, the flower boppers or whatever, like how all these like huge bands all started off like, like in Spinal Tap, how like. They have the early version of themselves, you know, when it's like, give me yes. some money. It's like that, like, every huge metal, like, rock god band started shitty. Um, and that's, yeah. when they, that's when they would cover Louie Louie. Actually, on that note, there is a 60s band called Honey Limited who did a version. And Bob Seeger wrote some of the first uh, singles for Honey Limited. Oh. So that's kind of the Seeger moment. It was like he was writing psychedelic rock songs for this Detroit girl group. Uh, their version is really cool. Uh, some of the versions are really great, but it just it it, it kind of it just became like a full on like '60s garage rock standard because uh, it's really easy to play and because the bar was set with this like drunken vocal style, you couldn't you sort of couldn't screw it up. All right, you had to yeah. do is play. It's just three chords. You just had to play those chords, be really loud, and just scream at the top of your lungs, Louie, Louie, right? And then when the verse comes, you can just slur the shit out of the words, just make it up, and then just go back to screaming Louie, Louie. So it just be it became like this I, I'm trying to like, true standard. Like, as, as we're talking about how many covers, like, because I noticed this thing that happens when you search up, like, any old song or any song that's, like, such, like, a standard in America, um, there's always a trap remix. And so I just, <laughs> I literally just looked up to see if there's a Louie Louie trap remix. There's oh not. God. There is not. Um, so, <laughs> so someone out there, please make one. There's a really great uh, Tutti Frutti uh trap remix oh so. jesus <laughs> um, or it's more like a bounce song it's like a bounce song it's it's really good for real um so i do want to say in my nerding out of the song uh i did really like 
the Sonics version, who we mentioned earlier, who also covered Have Love, Will Travel by um, Richard Berry. Uh, I like their version of Louie Louie because they change the chords just slightly to make it like a little bit cooler sounding. Um, that being said, uh, a I lot mean, of these versions are pretty similar from the 60s because yeah. everyone was kind of like jumping on a bandwagon. So that also makes it feel, you know, very dumpy because it's like everyone's just they can't all be great. You know what I mean? Right. No, of course not. Like, and that, But again, when you take a song that simple and you try and make it your own, then you get into real dump territory because you start fucking up a standard and making it all crazy and weird. And you're right. just like, what the fuck is this? Just stick to the fucking two chords or whatever the fuck it is. You know, there's also a lot of um, kind of like sequel songs that came out in the 60s. There was a song like Louie Louie's Louis last Home. name, like yeah, Smith like Smith, Louie come back. Louie Louie's coming back. Louie Louie Louie. <laughs> Louie Louie got married. Um, I love Louie Louie. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's just absurd, really. Um, so that's kind of like where it stood in the 60s, right? So now we still got to like get to like this dump just keeps going, right? Because it feels like it. At any point, it's like, I don't know, it needs a little more. And there's one really big element, I think, to me, right? So it's in the 60s. Also, like we said, it's the early 60s. So it's before, like, the whole psychedelic movement, before the hippie, like, countercultural revolution, before large, widespread protests of Vietnam is going to, like, pretty drastically change the shape of American pop culture. Um, but then what happens is in the 70s, Louie Louie gets put into a movie, American Graffiti. Um, it's an early, it's George Lucas. It's a classic yeah, movie. Yeah. But by the 70s, now you've started to get into the nostalgia thing. So now in the 70s with glam rock, you start seeing like a nostalgia for the 50s, uh, even though Louie Louie is the 60s, whatever. Well, then. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is the 50s too. <laughs> so, but then what happens is then. In 78, Animal House comes out, the National Lampoon comedy that is, again, very... I haven't watched Animal House in a very long time, but when it, when I first saw it, it was very life-changing to me. Yeah, um, sure. And that is a movie in the late 70s that is a nostalgia to the early 60s college party culture. And I mean that there's a scene with John Belushi and they're in togas. They're all wasted and they're singing along to Louie Louie. And I think that that scene in that movie like propelled the song to like essentially like a whole other generation. I like think that that, that I mean, solidified it as a party song more so yes. than like people trying to be rebellious playing it in the 60s. Like that was more of like a tongue in cheek, like like, oh, people like like the grownups are getting mad when we when we play this because they don't get it. But yeah. it being an animal house, like all the controversy had been passed. And it's just like, no, this is just a great part. Like Twist and Shout also had a huge resurgence because of Animal House. You know, yeah, so, and and, uh, sh and shout too. Yeah, yeah, shout. Yeah, yeah, yeah not twist and shout. Yeah. yeah, shout, shout. Oh, yeah. right, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it be it be made those songs. I think that Animal House is kind of what made it be like, oh, this is like a classic, like American 
song or something. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because the movie was the movie's so popular and the scene isn't even there's not much to the scene, but like I mean, I'll say as a high schooler, I was like, okay, I want to be at that party where they're just wearing bed sheets and they're drinking beer and singing Louie Louie. And I will admit that I definitely had a party with my friends where we just like <laughs> recreated that. Like we drank, we got drunk enough, we turned up the speakers, we played Louie Louie, we took the sheets off the bed and we just like did it like word for word, like just from <laughs> we the We took scene, the sheets I- off the bed and we just did it. <laughs> Me and my boys, we got really drunk. We threw my, on Louie Louie, ripped the sheets off the bed because we don't want to fuck them up, and we just did it. <laughs> hey, I'm just put. I'm putting myself out. I'm being cringe. I'm being cringe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that at that point, that's when it became like a party song because what it is is it's kind of like. So Sweet Caroline is another like song where it's kind of like a party song. It's like a drunk song. I can't tell you how many times I've been at like a wedding or wherever. Everyone's drunk, you know, and they go, Sweet Caroline. Oh, yeah. Da, da, oh, I da, hate da. it. Yeah, or karaoke. And yeah. You, ha- you have that drunk karaoke thing. But the thing about Louie Louie is you can literally be drunk and you can sing it just as well because you can screw Cause up Because you can words. mess it up. Yeah. Um. It's already so, messed up. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to Richard Berry, though, right? So yeah. because he sold the rights to the song in 1959, he is he missed out on a lot. Um, all of these cover songs. I mean, that is so much money and success that he he missed out on by selling the song uh, for 750 bucks. Uh, this is this also goes into a lot of. These like shady business practices that happened a lot in the 50s and 60s, actually in the 30s and 40s, especially with blues artists. Oh, sure. Um, with predatory record labels signing off the rights to the original writers, and then they don't get to see any money from the music. Um, there, apparently, it's been quoted by Richard Berry that he did not bear ill will. Uh, to that fact, he said he ma- he he was kind of like a deal is a deal, right? Yeah. But then it's like stand up guy. That's, fucking, that's like nutty though, because of like all of the money that is not being made by you. Um, and by the eighties, uh, he was he was on uh, w- welfare, like he yeah. wasn't. He was living with his mom. Well. Yeah. Hmm. Um. And. But his luck changed. And I, I love to hear this because sometimes these stories don't end like this. And like I am really happy to hear that his luck changed. But basically, uh, the song was going to be used in a commercial. And they needed For to For California have, Cooler. They needed to have his actual signature to make it go through. And I think when the lawyers you know, got his signature and saw what state he was in, they were like, hey, I wonder, like, can we help you get your rights back to the song and he got the the rights back uh, apparently with some help from the Kingsmen as well Um, and once that happened the song was still so successful and making so much royalty money that he basically became like an instant millionaire yep Um, yeah and he was able to live out the like last 10 years or so of his life he died in the 90s uh, you know quite well off so I, I love like a happy story 
yeah it comes from that yeah like it's at the end of at the end of this whole story after we've talked about all this stuff like the cool part about it is the guy that did originally write the song you know not the band that made it famous because you know they they had their own share of success because of that but the guy that they got it from the little guy on the totem pole so to speak he got what was coming to him eventually and died a rich man. So like you mm-hmm. could like, you know, it, it the story could have ended so easily with, Oh yeah. Did you know the guy that actually wrote Louie Louie, like died with like not a penny to his name, like on welfare. Yeah. And that's like, that's generally how that story should have gone. Had it not been for these, these lawyers that were like, we could, and you know what though? And, and I wasn't able to find more about this. I bet you that they were like, yeah, we'll help you get it back, but we want like 5%. Or whatever, because even that would be a mm-hmm. huge uh, amount of money. Right, right. But to give that guy mm. anything for his song after it had reached the heights of success that it did is a great ending to a dump. Like you know what I mean? Like it's a it's a happy yeah. dump ending. It it definitely is. Um, I do want to also mention the, there's so many covers: uh, Allman Brothers, the New York Dolls, the Clash. Uh, Apparently, it was really big with a lot of punk bands. The Fall, the pop because it's group, a punk Lou song. Reed. Like the whole it idea is, of it, yeah. And the and again, because the idea of just like, which again wasn't intentional, but the idea of like, let's just record it, mistakes and all, flubs and all. Who cares? You know, let's put that in there. And the FBI um, inv- involvement and everything, like it became like a fucking. It's like a middle finger song, you know. Really, it's a, it's just a the, a soundtrack to, to youth rebellion. Black Flag did a version, uh, but then also Barry White did a disco version. Stanley what? Clark and George Duke. Yeah, Barry White does a disco version. That's <laughs> or it's sick. not really like, it's not totally disco, but it is like funky. Uh, some people like even changed the chord progressions, made them more sophisticated. Uh, the Fat Boys did a version. <laughs> that um, checks out. Tom Petty did a version. I think I already said that one. Um but oh you know what we forgot though is that for all the lack of obscenity there was oh. an obscenity yes yeah in the so song. so and and the fbi by the way did not even catch this this was caught years later and and became known years and years later at 54 seconds into the kingsman version of louis louis what happened was the drummer dropped one of his sticks and because as we we discussed they were only they only did two takes and they all had to do it at once there was no like oh we'll just have the drummer re-record on the next one he had to keep going and you can Knowing that you're about to hear it, you will absolutely catch it. He screams "fuck" uh, after dropping yeah. his stick, and that got that mm-hmm. stayed in. But because there's so much like "oh yeah, yeah, yeah" and like yelling and all this stuff, like it kind of just falls into the mix. But knowing that he's saying right. "fuck," you can't not hear it. So let, let's take a listen to the actual piece of obscenity in Louis Louis that somehow the FBI missed or didn't count or however that worked. Yeah, good, good catch. I, I, uh, yeah. I, I totally would have forgot I mean, uh, about that. I'll say, because you can barely understand anything, you can kind of barely understand him saying "fuck." <laughs> so yeah. it kind of all gets muddled together uh, in there. But that was kind of one of those funny little twists of irony, uh, which also just kind of it adds to the comedy of the whole thing, where it's like you got the singer, he's got his braces, he's like awkwardly craning his neck up at the mic, the drummer's dropping sticks, you know, it's everything about it. I think part of that lighthearted nature is also what made, is also what contributes to the song's 
you know effect it, and it's it's a perfect it's song for impact. every every young person to like start playing with the very first people you ever play music with like it, it captures that spirit and it lives on to this day you know i mean right and that honestly the best thing that you found when you were doing your research on this was louis fest right so now louis fest so basically at this point sort of from the 80s, 90s onward, which is starting to get to the point where I would have encountered Louie, Louie, you or I would have, yeah. is now after Animal House, first thing that happened is that then it started, the song started to appear in a lot more movies. It was in uh, Blood Simple, the first Coen Brothers movie. It was in Naked Gun, Files of the Police Squad. It was in uh, Wayne's World 2. It was in Mr. Holland's Opus, um, <laughs> which are not, these are not like necessarily like, I don't know, it's a bunch of random movies, but it started to become in movies more. Um, and I think then what happened is then by the 90s, you sort of, now you're having this retro look back at the 60s. And also you've got this sort of phenomenon where the boomers are kind of like, the 60s was the best time. Yeah, it was the know? shit. Like, yeah. this was the best time. We made the best music. So you kind of, you start to see Louie Louie is being, like, really solidified as, like, this is rock culture. And, uh, like, there was literally a book written about Louie Louie. Um, and there was a thing called Louie Fest, which I want to go to. Um they're the way you Louis described Fest. it to me is a hellscape. <laughs> it's a hellscape. Uh, it began in 2003 as the so 1000 guitars <laughs> the 1000 guitars festival, which sounds horrible. Um, and I found some video of basically it's just like a bunch of dads with visors who like bust who are like dusting off their Fender guitars and they're it's just a bunch of people playing Louis Louis it's it's a it's like a swingers party like same age demographic as most swingers parties but instead of walking around trying to find new people to bang you walk around trying to find new people to jam Louie Louie with. And because there's no like, like I'm sure that there's a set schedule, like this is the big Louie Louie jam. And this is like this band doing it. But like, it really is like this group over here started playing it 30 seconds ago. This group is two minutes into it. This group is like a minute and 45 seconds into it. So it's like, imagine, yeah, like a couple thousand people playing Louie Louie together, but not together. They're just all playing it at the same time. I I would like to think if maybe if everyone is playing Louie Louie on their own, on their own time, and then you wander around, and then if you happen to meet someone and you are both playing it at the same time, like that's your soulmate, right? Yeah. Like just in the random <laughs> That's the Louie to your Louie. That is your Louie to their Louie. <laughs> now, apparently Louie Fest does have other acts too, so it's it's more of a traditional rock fest. Louis Anderson. They, all, they always have a moment where they just have ev they invite everyone to to just play Louis Louis. Louis. <laughs> um, so, but this is kind of when it starts to become part of like the boomer solidification. There was a Louis Louis parade, uh, which also all these things. There's a Louis Louis marathon on radios where they played for six 
days straight, different covers of Louis Louis. That is there CIA is a, torture. There is a Louis Louis sculpture in Vegas. Of what? Somewhere. There's a uh it's just a sculpture titled Louis Louis 2013 at the Wendell Wyatt Federal Building. <laughs> I'm gonna have to or, go no, visit no, no, sorry. that. It's a Vegas no no sorry, it's it's in Portland. It's a Vegas based artist. So oh, it's in okay. Portland. Um, so a lot of this stuff is happening in Portland, uh, where yeah the Kingsmen were from. So there is a, the Louis Awards. I don't even know what some of this shit is. That's fucking out of um, control. There, uh, April eleventh is Richard Berry's birthday. It's celebrated as International Louis Louis Day. I don't know who is celebrating international louis louis i mean we're gonna be celebrating it now i'm putting it on my calendar i will April observe 11th, it yeah 2024 fly the flag at half mast uh, yeah so it's i think part of it is like then in the 90s it really you have that because a lot of this stuff is being sort of fueled by radio because radio in the 90s was like a huge like entity you know it's sure, like a yeah. corporate powerhouse so it is a way to kind of solidify to be like this was the shit and you know you've got people who just talk about it and it does have it does have like a very special place in pop culture but it's also funny because it's also like a really it's a really silly song it's a great song i love louis louis don't get me wrong um but like louis fest sounds like torture that's too much so what does it all mean well I guess it means that there will always be a separation between the new and old guard. Parents will always be suspicious of pop culture trends they can't comprehend, but that doesn't mean that these trends are harmful. In a day and age where there are so many clear-cut examples of the youth being negatively influenced by the content that they consume, Louie Louie represents the pure, innocent, and necessary separation of young and old. That's what I think Beautiful. it means. Now, um, folks, yeah, wow, that was a, we, I, we just spent so long talking about fucking Louis Louis. I, I bet you you I could know, fit I, like twenty Louis Louis in in this time. But I um, wanted to say at the start that like the thing about Louis Louis is that it is a big wormhole, and you just kind of you keep finding more random stuff, and you're like, oh my god, and then yeah. you've said Louis too many times and then louie doesn't mean anything i never want to hear it again i'm gonna go i'm gonna listen to it after this though and, and fire up the grill but um i do want to say folks uh we always like to plug our patreon as you know patreon.com slash culture dumps but there's a new reason besides our dozens and dozens and dozens of bonus episodes side series like docu dumps ryan's reports squirts uh wdump we, we have all of that plus woodstock 99 set commentaries for watch alongs all that stuff is on there but we just finally uploaded the Woodstock 99 mystery tape. Patreon finally allows you to upload videos straight to the site. So now you can see, in our opinion, the most important resource of Woodstock 99 information. It's a full-length documentary produced by the Rome, New York Sentinel, the local newspaper up there where Woodstock 99 took place. And mm -hmm. it, it, they, they don't even show you any music acts. And they don't talk about a lot of the stuff that makes Woodstock 99 so infamous because it was filmed on the grounds. I don't even think they had like real press passes because none None of the stuff is shot backstage. They don't interview anyone. It's all just on the grounds. It has the sights, smells, and sounds. But, <coughs> pardon me. Um, also, it's it's never been aired. 
before. So you can pretty, and, and as far as I know, you can only watch it through our Patreon. So check that out. We're really excited that we were able to finally share that with folks. And as we all know, Woodstock 99 is the ultimate culture dump, which is why we have a whole nother series just about it. Podcast mm-hmm. 99. That's right. And uh, check out the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash culture dumps. Cause I am definitely going to post some of the uh, better, Louie Louie covers I found some I found some Louie Louie or Louie Fest footage so that every episode we do we also post like just interesting little extra stuff if you want to dive deeper into any one of our episodes yep and if you'd like to own a piece of a, of a dump uh, and and really help us support the show you can check out culturedumps.bigcartel.com that's our store we have all kinds of collectibles and fun stuff up there we'll, we'll have some uh, original merch up there soon but with that being said, folks, I'm Ryan Lichten. I've been joined by Parks Miller. Keep on dumping.